I'm Bob Schieffer. And I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And this is the truth of the matter. This is the podcast where we break down the policy issues of the day. Since the politicians are having their say, we will excuse them with respect and bring in the experts, many of them from CSIS, people who have been working these issues for years. No spin, no bombast, no finger pointing, just informed discussion. In today's episode of The Truth of the Matter, I'm flying solo as Bob Schieffer is out of town. To get to the truth of the matter about our collective public health and our collective economic health, my colleagues, Dr. Steve Morrison and Stephanie Siegel here with me now. Steve, how do you see this and what's the situation right now? Well, first of all, we're in a very dramatic moment right now, which is the steep acceleration that's underway, concentrated in New York and other parts of the country as well. But in New York, it's very, very dramatic. Uh, We had Governor Cuomo just give a kind of stunning press conference middle of the day. Uh, It's moving faster. It's rising more steeply than anticipated. The acute shortages that were predicted are actually appearing in very stark Terms they're on a crash basis creating with FEMA four hospitals of a thousand beds in Jacob Javits Convention Center. So we're in the takeoff phase right now. It's the epicenter uh, within the United States, and 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 very quickly we could overtake China in the actual case counts. And so that's a startling development that is, I think, rocking everyone in this country and putting a putting what's happening here in a in another global context. Another thing that's happened, which we witnessed last night in President Trump's statement and the uh, other statements at the White House task force session, which lasted an hour and 49 minutes, is we're seeing the resurfacing of the innate tensions between the public health approach to the crisis versus the economics, the economic approach or economic consequences and dimension of this those are in attention with one another. We've always, always known that social distancing and shelter in place controls that have been put in place. And now 100 million people plus in the United States living under fairly tight controls. Those have a crushing impact on economies. There is a legitimate and very serious question of how and when do you safely roll back those controls? How do you know when it is the right moment and how do you go about doing it? And the president was signaling last night that he's getting uh, very nervous, uh, that he wants to uh, shorten up the timeline, that he wants to push back on his public health advisors on the stage. Absent from the stage were uh, Tony Fauci, Admiral Brett Girard, Secretary Azar. You did have Deborah Burks there. So what does this mean? It means that some conservative economists, Kudlow, Navarro are pushing back. There's a sort of revolt within the White House. There's also actions being taken by corporate leadership weighing in with Trump. It's also a campaign dimension to this. Jared Kushner is playing a big role in these deliberations. He's driving the campaign as well as operating a second group of folks that assemble to weigh on what's going on. I think there's a nervousness about the $2 trillion package, which could trigger a populist blowback. They're nervous about what the shutdown is going to do in terms of delaying recovery and what impact on the elections 
as I said, asking very legitimate questions. Stephanie, we're seeing a huge surge in the stock market today. And that's, I guess, as a result that they were getting closer in Congress to a, a deal on the stimulus package. But first, let's talk about what Steve's referring to is the president is concerned increasingly, and so are some of his economic advisors about the economic health of the country. And really, he talked about the economic health of the world last night in his briefing as well. Um, Can you talk about that a little bit? I think the themes from the last few weeks were uncertainty as far as the trajectory and the path for the virus, the measures that countries would take to deal with the virus, and then what the economic impacts would be. Now, I feel like we're in a different stage. The uncertainty in some respect, has been addressed because we know that it's bad. We know that it's pandemic. Pretty much the entire world has had to take measures and it has been digested, um, the economic impact of the measures that are being taken. So the market, you asked about kind of what the market response is about. I think the market response over the last few weeks has been really digesting that negative news and digesting the economic impact I would have said um, up until yesterday's press conference that some of that uncertainty has been relieved because we seem to have a course of action that just recognized that the, the appropriate health response was to take action that have economic spillovers, but that the priority needs to be put on the health response. And there was a walk back from that position, which... Um, you know, this is more Steve's turf than mine, but seem to not be well informed by the experts. Um, And I think that raises kind of the specter of uncertainty all over again. What we have seen, and your question about what we're seeing in markets today, for the last few weeks, it's really been the Federal Reserve that's been responding to the fallout, the economic fallout from the crisis and doing its utmost to prevent the economic shock from morphing into a financial crisis. Um, And so they have been very aggressive. I think the market maybe underappreciates some of those moves or they'll react, but then they'll give back some of the the gains. But I think the Fed has really been um, essential in their response and and they've been getting a lot of of very well-deserved credit for moving aggressively to do what they can to make sure that the financial system doesn't seize up and they've been successful in doing that. But what they can do is is effectively provide bridge financing to the economy. They cannot provide resources to fill the holes that are evident now as a result of the crisis. And that's where you need the fiscal response. So you saw when Congress had not reached agreement as expected over the weekend, you saw a very negative reaction from the market on Monday because there's an appreciation that there are losses and that those losses require fiscal funding to address. And there is hope, at least as of recording today, there's hope that um, that we're very close to agreement and agreement is going to be on a very large number, somewhere in the range of 1.6 to 2 trillion, um, which is unprecedented to say the least, and that that fiscal package addresses losses in two areas of the economy. It, it has components and spending for individuals to compensate for lost wages, and it has um, provisions to help 
corporates that are dealing with lost revenues. So there's reason, I guess, for optimism that we're seeing the fiscal piece come into play. Um, now we have to wait and see what's ultimately passed and, um, and then go from there. Because as I've heard uh, Secretary Mnuchin say a few times, uh, referencing baseball, you know, we're, we're in the third inning now at this point. A lot of innings left to play. Well, Stephanie, what happens if we do pass the stimulus package? Does the market continue to rise? Do people feel more confidence? Like, is it just a temporary stopgap or does it put us back on the path to a real recovery? I think this is where we go back to Steve's expertise, because this is the um, the fiscal response to the crisis. But the crisis itself is not an economic crisis. It's a health crisis. And the measures that have been taken to deal with that health crisis are the ones that have the economic impacts. But um, it goes back to what's the trajectory here of the virus and what are the the health responses to that? And those responses are the things that are going to determine the outlook. Um, and so I, I don't feel that we're in a scenario where this fiscal package is passed, the market rises, and we're, we're back to where we were, um, you know, back in, in January. I think this is going to be very iterative in a sense to to see now what is the strategy to deal with the crisis that has many different aspects, but starting first and foremost from the health piece. Steve, Governor Cuomo said that the cases in New York are doubling every three days. President's saying we can't remain shut for business um, indefinitely. We can't. And he said if it was up to all the doctors, Doctors would shut us down. Um, he even, you know, said flippantly for you know a couple of years. So you've got these conflicting scenarios that you described before. What's the? Is there a happy medium here? Is there? You know, what do you think needs to happen? The president's performance yesterday was, in part, a kind of panicked reaction, very impulsive, not thought out, and the like. Um, it is reflective of a, a hardening of opinion that we've seen on the opinion page of the Wall Street Journal, uh, expressions from some conservative economists and others, and even some very crude statements about who's got to die in order to allow this economy to be recovering. But on the public health side, you've seen widespread condemnation of the president's remarks last night. And coming from uh, any number of directions, including from his own party, and uh, elected members of the Senate um, in the House, that polarization is a very dangerous one. The idea that that you can mandate in this crisis, uh, in two or three weeks, we are going to declare that people can go back to work is entirely unrealistic in the midst of the crisis that we're in right now. I mean, just for comparative purposes, the Chinese did things that we're completely incapable of doing in suppressing the virus and forcing people, 150 million people into total lockdown for eight, eight weeks. Now, the Indian prime minister, Modi, has mandated that Indians stay in their homes for three weeks. Yes. And so to answer your question, is there a happy medium or how do we go forward? What Stephanie said is absolutely true. This is a pandemic. Pandemics don't really respect 
uh, what the preferences are of elected officials here in the United States. They respect whatever kind of controls are put in. And if there are effective controls, it will be uh, shortened up in the damage and speed and velocity that it that it moves ahead. If there are inadequate controls put in place, it will have maximum long term damage. That's the facts of the of the equation that can't be wished away. We have to think, Okay, the Chinese did something in eight weeks with utterly extraordinary measures. We are now at this moment in time seeing the first epicenter and we're going to be watching that very carefully uh, and, and, and very anxiously as it spreads, as, a, as we see this takeoff phase within the United States, what is reasonable to expect uh, in getting control over that? I expect that as we see fatality rates rise, as we see hospital systems overwhelmed in New York City and elsewhere in the coming days, the remarks that were made last night are going to look utterly ridiculous. And people are going to come back to going to come back to a position of how do we realistically peel back controls? And there we have to be looking at places that are going through, that are farther down the down range from the United States, like the Chinese, to ask what is it that they are doing in order to try to loosen controls without reigniting the epidemic? And how are we going to model some of our behavior? And what sort of systems are we going to have to put in place? We are going to need very granular uh, testing data from within households in order to be able to feel confident in saying these communities are, are, are safe to return to certain workplaces and the like. And we're going to have to have a some form of tracking and monitoring that we don't have today, but we could be moving towards that. So China has announced that it is now going to ease their lockdown on Hubei province two months after imposing it. So does this mean that we're now the epicenter? We, the United States, are we the epicenter of this crisis? We are very, very rapidly becoming the epicenter. If you look at the at the data released today in terms of the numbers coming out of Europe remains still very high and continuing to climb, those major uh, epidemics have not yet peaked. So we are moving into that position right now very, very rapidly. And of course, that changes the entire picture of the nature of this crisis as far as uh, having to admit the reality of it. It's inescapable. And let's face it, the governors are the front line. The governors are calling the shots. Uh, The governors are the heroes in this story and are very reliant on support that they're receiving from the the federal government. And and some of that uh, is forthcoming. But let's also realize today in Cuomo's press statement, he said, I've received from the federal, from the national, from the strategic national stockpiles, 400 ventilators against a request for 30,000. That's where the governors find themselves today. Stephanie, the tension between the economy and the health of the nation is sure to continue. How do you think that debate is going to continue to play out? And can that debate be constructive in any way? I think it can be constructive, but I think it needs to be managed in a way that allows it to be constructive. And this idea that you need to have um, a holistic strategy, one that takes into account the, the health strategy, but recognizes the economic impacts that appreciates 
in a pandemic situation that there needs to be diplomacy and cooperation with uh, with countries around the world. I think that is absolutely the right way to think about this. So I don't dismiss at all that um, the economic impacts absolutely need to be part of the conversation. The problem is that if you approach that, that conversation and you even introduce that debate in the context of a press conference and introduce it, I would say prematurely, um, my understanding of the, you know, this lockdown period that we're in is to contain and get a better grasp on where we have hotspots in the country so that we can then design a health response that, um, that recognizes what the situation on the ground is. Um, getting out ahead of that um, and kind of setting expectations that we might, you know, roll back some of these measures um, and even kind of feeding the notion that our policymakers are more concerned with the economic impacts than they are with the health impacts. That's that's just not helpful. And I think, as, as Steve alluded to, it actually kind of sets back the the progress that that was being made as far as getting us, um, you know, with a, a strategy that kind of takes all these equities into account. The other piece to this is we actually have the benefit of China's experience and also looking at what um, countries like Korea and Singapore have done in their containment measures. So we can learn from what other countries have done that would allow them to get back to business sooner, but it's also a reflection of um, the fact that this is global. So whatever we end up doing here nationally, unless we recognize that, um, you know, something we didn't recognize, that if we shut off one point of entry, but don't shut off every other point of entry, then we're not actually dealing with the crisis. So this idea that we would move kind of by ourselves um, with our strategy and not appreciate that the rest of the world may still be dealing with this pandemic, um, that is not a recipe to get the economy back on track. Some experts have argued that there's a, a so-called surgical vertical approach to sequestering parts of our society that are the most vulnerable, the elderly, the immune deficient, to stay away while other people who are less susceptible to the infection, who would find it less lethal, could go back to work. Do either one of you think that that's a strategy that could be, A, that it could be deployed now, B, that it could actually work? Well, so long as we don't have any immunities in our population, and so long as this virus can be transmitted by people who are infected, but asymptomatic or only having mild illness, means that your entire population is a threat to those that are uh, elderly or with underlying conditions. In other words, um, you can't be having people who are vectors who are carrying this virus, acquiring that virus, and then coming back and interacting. That will just simply perpetuate the chain of uh, the chain of transmission. Keep in mind, we have no immunity to this. This is a novel virus. It's new. It's sweeping the world. And we have no vaccine. And the development of antivirals is, is proceeding apace. There are quite a number under consideration, but we won't see any of those introduced for six to nine months. And a vaccine, we're looking at 12 to 18 months under the most optimistic 
of, of, of scenarios. So I don't think that sort of segregated approach by population uh, is, is likely to be very workable. We do need to look at how the Koreans were able to feel comfortable that populations in certain geographies were cleared of the virus uh, sufficiently to begin to return to normal life. Those sorts of studies are going to be essential in what we in what we do here. And Steve, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think part of what the Koreans have also been able to do is just ramp up their testing and the efficiency of that testing in a way that we we we're just not there yet. And so, you know, you you need data, number one, and we're we're just kind of early on in this to have data that would allow you to make judgments about what strategies might be effective. But if you go in the direction of kind of relaxing some of the controls, I think you would have to do that in the context of ramping up the capabilities, recognizing that the the spread will continue. And so that means you need to have the testing capability in place, and you need to have facilities then to treat people and not deal with a situation like what we've seen in other hotspots where the number of cases just overwhelm the health infrastructure to deal with those cases. Yeah, I would I would agree entirely with what you just said. The shutdown, uh, the shelter in place shutdown is essential, and that's a largely passive set of set of measures. What we need in addition in order to arrest this and return to normality is a very aggressive and proactive approach that puts in place uh, effective and quick and universal testing that gives you a visibility into exactly where the virus is, along with the capacity to isolate and marginalize uh, those that are sick and separate them uh, as they are treated and, and, and cured. Um, and we're not there yet. Um, I do think we will move towards some sort of easily accessible point of care testing that could be self-administered uh, in the future. I would hope that that's the sort of solution that will help us get out of this. But the debates that have been going on for the last several weeks by those who've looked at this and thought it's completely untenable to crush the economy over such a long period of time. We can't do that. Well, we also can't be simply lifting the lid and having people die and having it reignite. What is it going to take as the intervening set of strategies in order to move us forward? And that's that combination of interventions that are going to be essential. And it's going to be really hard because we're doing it so late in the midst of crisis. So we're going to have to do it while people are under such severe stress economically, where they're going to be traumatized and in fear and where there's going to be some higher probability of disorder in some of the more disrupted places. Stephanie, as an economist, you know, some believe that, you know, stimulating the economy as the government's trying to do right now isn't necessarily the right prescription. Instead, they think what really needs to happen here is liquidity. What do you think of that argument? Well, I, th I think you need both. So the liquidity piece is absolutely essential. And that's everything that we've seen the Federal Reserve and other central banks around the world doing is really just to provide that liquidity and basically to recognize that all of us have just incurred this extraordinary shock. 
And we need to basically maintain that liquidity in the financial system to allow everyone that's been hit by the shock to continue to roll over their exposures, right? So the fact that companies that previously would not have any problem going and placing uh, commercial paper or um, creditworthy borrowers that wouldn't have any issue um, getting a mortgage to buy a home, those transactions, because of the uncertainty, because those investors that would typically buy the debt that those issuers would issue are just wanting to be in cash, not wanting to hold these debt securities. And so you've needed the Federal Reserve to step up and basically be that lender of last resort to keep that financial plumbing working. They've been doing that. But the the point I was making earlier on, that's only part of the response. You need fiscal. And I don't even think of it as stimulus. Stimulus, to me, I tend to think of, you know, what are you doing to try and juice the economy a little bit more? This stimulus is really just to um, make sure that the losses are not too great, that the economy doesn't continue to function. So when we when we kind of get out of the health crisis piece of this, we need the economy to still be functioning. We need our small businesses to still be operating concerns. We need people to, even if they've been furloughed from their jobs, that they have jobs to go back to and they're not having to go back and search for jobs. Employers are not having to retrain those employees. But for that to happen, you actually have to bridge the losses that they're currently incurring. So the restaurant down the street that isn't open they need to somehow to be able to continue to pay their rent. And if they're going to maintain their employees, they've got to figure out a way to pay those employees. And so a big piece of the fiscal package that's being negotiated is intended to get funding to those you know, economic actors, be they individuals or companies. And the hope is you can bridge that long enough that when we do start to see a return to normalcy, we can basically go back to those economic activities that we had pre-crisis. Yeah, I, I've seen just some startling um, advertisements from local restaurants. One today I got was from Potomac Pizza, which for those in the D.C. area I know is one of our most popular pizza chains. Today they were advertising a Tuesday special that if you come in and get one large cheese pizza for 99 cents, They'll give you a second large cheese pizza also for 99 cents. That's unbelievable. They're just trying to get people to come and get takeout food so their businesses can survive. We see all of us all around us are seeing, you know, in in very micro ways, the um, the signs that the macro data is telling us anyway. And we, you know, China, again, being kind of the first to suffer from this virus, we know there that they just had a collapse both in services and in manufacturing. And so what we're seeing basically the same thing. Um, there's there's no way that the economy isn't taking a huge hit right now. Um, you've had some Wall Street analysts speculate, you know, that we'll have um, kind of large double digit declines in quarter on quarter growth. Um, and you have the IMF just yesterday coming out and saying that this is probably a worse hit than what we saw in the global 
um, financial crisis, and that will end up seeing global growth um, negative for this year. So there's there's no question that this is a serious hit. Um, that you know policy support can help um, can help with that. But even with that help, we're still going to see a pretty big hit to the economy. Some industries are thriving, though. Technology, in particular, Zoom is way up. Facebook way up. All those technology-driven businesses. Amazon's hiring massive uh, amounts of workers. Um, can that help lead the way to recovery? Yeah, I, I mean, I think um, again, when you think about this crisis, it really it's kind of a three sixty because there are impacts in the way that we're working that are going to um, just fundamentally change the way that we um, that we engage um, in the economy. One of the examples that's most often cited on that technology front is when we talk about um, doctor visits and that there have been regulatory barriers and um, and funding barriers to basically enabling technology to um, to help with um, visits between patients and their their doctors. That has obviously changed and changed in a really quick way. There's also been reporting about some of the licensing requirements um, that prevented uh, a nurse from one state from being licensed in another state without having to go through um, a bunch of regulatory hurdles. Those things are coming down. So there are going to be some, some big changes um, that I think will benefit from on the other side of this crisis. So think about what some of the longer term impacts of this might be. And there could be some real benefits here, but we've got to get to that point first. And the thrust behind all of these policies that um, that we're seeing is to get us to the other side with as little damage to the real economy as possible. Well, let's end with a little bit of a ray of sunshine on that. Steve, Stephanie, it's always a pleasure to have you on. Thanks so much for joining me today to get to the truth of the matter as much as we can on this issue. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 